Hi, and welcome to episode 126 of Talking with Painters, where Australian painters talk about their lives and art. I'm Maria Stolger, and today one of Australia's most significant artists is returning to the podcast, Del Catherine Barton, whose fabulous exhibition, The Women Who Fell to Earth, is now showing at Roslyn Oxley 9 in Sydney. I caught up with her the day before the show opened last Friday, and it's the first Sydney show she's had in almost three years. Dell is one of our leading artists, especially famous for having won the Archibald Prize twice, and her works are held in many private collections and public institutions, and we talk about a recent acquisition by the National Gallery of Australia in this episode. It's hard to describe Dell's paintings, but they often present a kind of female sensuality, which is at the same time beautiful but confrontational, set in an intricately detailed imaginary world. Dell described herself to me last week as an optimist and the work hanging in this exhibition is a testament to that through vivid colour bursting from the canvas. Dell's also a sculptor and you might have seen bronze works in the Win Prize and Know My Name exhibition at the National Gallery of Australia. The sculptures in this exhibition are stunning large shells made from ancient timber and inlaid with exquisite materials. Another major project has also been developing over the last four years. Her first long-format film, which she directed and co-wrote, is debuting at the Tribeca Film Festival in June, and it's one of only 10 films that have been selected in the International Narrative Competition. And it was just selected for official competition in the upcoming Sydney Film Festival, again one of only 10 films selected internationally. It's a very personal work called Blaze and we talk about the film in this episode. I also videoed this interview in the gallery and I'll be getting a short video of highlights of the conversation on the Talking With Painters YouTube channel. That will be online in the coming weeks, so watch out for that. There are over 160 videos on the channel now which are free to watch, so just Google Talking With Painters YouTube or just go to the link in the show notes. I've also put a link to Rosalind Oxley 9's website, which uh, includes all the works in this show. But there's nothing quite like seeing Adele Catherine Barton show in the flesh. So if you're in Sydney, make sure you get there. It ends on the 28th of May, 2022. I started our conversation by asking Del what it was like showing back in Sydney again. It's really exciting to get to this point. I mean, always incredibly nerve-wracking. The show is almost ready to open, so definitely feeling adrenaline and anxiety, um, but definitely, yeah, very excited. I mean, I really treasure my relationship with Rosalind Oxley, and it's a huge privilege, you know, to be a part of this stable and show with Rosalind and... The team here is amazing. Yeah, and can I just say, these magenta walls are just amazing. Rosalind Oxley and I do these amazing installations of, of exhibitions and we've got this – I remember last time in your last show it was purple and now it's it's magenta and it's and the carpet is magenta and um, it's just it just looks fabulous. So congratulations. Thank you so much. I was a tiny bit nervous about the colour but um, I really wanted the show to be – immersive and womb-like and yeah I'm really really thrilled I, I feel that it's 
an energizing color but a soothing color simultaneously yeah totally yeah I think immersive is the right word that's what I was thinking as well and it's called the women who fell to earth which you know I was thinking about I thought gee it's got so many interpretations that that title and and anyone who knows your work I would know that you have this great relationship with the English language it's just so imaginative as well and if people follow you on Instagram they'll see that as well I love your Instagram page we'll get onto that later your your language it sort of lives outside the rules of grammar and speech and I just love it because visual art is outside of speech isn't it And, and language do you see your words and writing as part of your art for me it's an innate part of the practice on one level and then kind of tangential at the same time. Um, Occasionally, you know, along, you know, during the process of making the work, I I will feel quite clear about what the title is. But more often than not, it's something that happens sort of right at the end and it's quite intuitive and spontaneous. And, yeah, to your point, I really like when the relationship between the text and the iconography has a poetic, intangible quality I I feel like with the text I like to offer it's like an offering to the audience um but as but it sort of like a way in but at the same time I it's important to me that the language feels very open so it's kind of dichotomous in that way that there's a level of specificity but a level of um permeable kind of interpretation that happens at the same time I do love language um but it's not my most natural habitat, um, especially in terms of its relationship with my creative process and my creative being. Uh, what I worry about at times with language is, yeah, the level of specificity that it can be potentially reductive. Um, whereas when you're working with images, uh, and in particularly images that don't move, I feel like there's so much narrative potential that comes out of that. And I find that very exciting. Actually, this leads me to something else that, you know, your work, it just crosses so many media, you know. We've, we've got sculpture here as well yes. today, um, poetry, you're working, collaborating with furniture makers yeah. and we've got this beautiful <laughs> bed. I think I want one of those. When I saw it on your Instagram page, I want one of those. <laughs> These fantastic tables with huge eyes on them. Mm. So how do you see painting is, is within that whole practice? Do you think it's a primary part of it? The painting is at absolutely primary um, but even more primary than the painting is the drawing practice actually and I mean I struggle with um, categorizing works I think again it, it can create sort of reductive interpretations um, because on one level although I do call them paintings um, the paintings the the foundation of the paintings, the skeleton of the painting is absolutely a, a drawing practice. Um, and for me, the vulnerability and the immediacy of the line work that I begin with, it's very important to me that that's retained um, one, you know, as I finish the work as well, even though the work is very um, labour-intensive and layered and and you know, layer upon layer is something I always say to myself in the studio. But um, for me, I'm, I mean, I feel it in my body talking about it. I am passionate about line. It's actually something I've not 
really talked about before and I don't fully understand it but for me it it's sort of like the most primal simplistic action for a fine artist it's it's your hand it's it's a drawing implement and it's a surface and yeah the relationship those three relationships are absolutely primary Mm. in terms of um working across a lot of different media uh, one of my truths in life is that your sort of greatest strengths are also your greatest weaknesses. Um, one thing I treasure in myself but struggle with simultaneously is that the creative energy that that I have in my being is just so overwhelming um, and so eager to go in so many different directions having said that always with the core discipline of the drawing painting practice but it brings me incredible joy to especially at this stage of my life I turned 50 this year I've been working full-time as an artist for nearly 30 years now to bring sort of developed skill sets to materials that I don't understand very well I love the anxiety the play the um the not knowing that comes out of that and Again, like bringing that more dangerous, playful energy back into the painting practice. Because even though I'm a workhorse and I love labour-intensive methodologies, risk is very important to me in the practice. Uh, And again, the energy of risk, I think, has a a level of creative integrity that, that I find very important. And then I suppose the other thing that happens as you exist within creative um, communities and creative industries is the opportunity to work with other extraordinary creatives to realise things that you would not be able to realise, you know, on your own. And again, you have to navigate that very carefully. Um, but for me, that that is a very generous life energy um, and, and a huge privilege. Yeah. Well, I suppose you have to... Um get to the point where you know if you're talking about risk you've got to be doing something that you don't know if it's going to work or not a hundred percent so I suppose with with say film for example Mm -hmm. which I want to talk a bit more about later on uh that is a whole world that you must have just been thrown into because I mean it's very unusual for people to hear they think oh yeah Del Catherine Barton she paints and she's you know does sculpture and think what she's making a film (laughs) (laughs) So you don't often hear of that because it is a bit of a jump to something totally different. So that must be part of uh, when you have that abundance of creativity Mm. that you're always looking for that. Well, look, um, from the youngest age, I've been obsessed with film. And on one level, I see film making and film craft as being the most kind of ultimate art form in a way. And the reason I say that is because the confluence of skill sets that needs to come together to create a successful film is so absurdly ambitious. (laughs) (laughs) And um, the film that I have just spent the last four years making with, you know, a team of extraordinary creatives, it is an auteur film. Um, I did co-write it and direct it. And... 
it's the kind of film that very rarely gets made here in Australia, unfortunately. Um, so when I was given the opportunity, I mean, it's sort of... I mean, I am going on now to make more feature films, but it did feel like a once-in-a-lifetime kind of opportunity. I was absolutely shitting myself at so many um, thresholds along the way, but the, the degree to which I had to commit exactly to what I was saying earlier, to sort of that not knowing but also trusting um, my vision um, and working very closely and establishing you know, close relationships with my collaborators that were so deeply based on trust and mutual respect. Um, yeah, I mean, it was utterly brutal and utterly exhilarating simultaneously. Well, I suppose the other thing about that film, it's called Blaze and you've been working on it for the for the last four years. Yes. Um, but but it's, very, it's a very personal film, mm. isn't it? You've described it as a, a tough story. It's in centres around a young girl who accidentally witnesses a woman being attacked and and it leaves her in a, a a catatonic state and and she then summons an imaginary dragon to process that anger and and uh, for that dragon to protect her can you tell me a bit a bit about it and and what it's been like making it there were many um starting points um f- for the film project blaze um but there was a moment in in time in particular and I was driving my car to, to my studio and it was the first time that I'd heard this statistic and it was given a lot of airplay at the time and has continued to which is very important and the statistic that I heard was that one woman every week in Australia on average gets murdered by a current or, f- or former partner. And I really felt, I mean, absolutely shocking. Yeah, a, um, my blood ran cold, tears came to my eyes. And in that moment, um, and as an extension of the short film format, I did feel v- very moved to weigh into that conversation around violence against women I mean it's hard for me to talk about this process succinctly I must admit Um, I mean what also informed that level of commitment was it was informed by by personal experience also um, experiences that I have done you know, decades of inner work around and... um, Did that make it hard to make the film from that point of view? On one level... On one level it was vital that I'd had those experiences so that I could draw from them authentically. But what I wasn't expecting to be honest um was the level to which I would be triggered in the process of making the film and and still now like it is hard to talk about um it's something I I'm open to talking about but I suppose 
if I try to distill what I'm feeling <laughs> is just being forced to acknowledge that what happened to me no matter how much therapy you do and how much you grow that experiences informs and stays with you and impacts your your whole life and I think that messaging is really important um we, we live in a culture that's saturated with violence um across so many platforms entertainment platforms and I am just very hopeful that there can be more complex um conversations about that and and the far-reaching, um, unexpected at times impact that these experiences have and the residue of that. And um, it's not just about a trauma that is localised to a moment in time. Um, that is trauma that you have to navigate your whole life. Yeah. So uh, there's no sort of happy ending necessarily. Like, I mean, as in with therapy, for example, or, or say you did this film and now you're, you know, you've sort of resolved it, you, you work through it, but is it a way, in a way, of living with it? There absolutely is. And I am a born optimist um, and you just need to look at my work to see and f feel that. Like, um, and the film is a tough film and it does go to dark places but at its core what the film celebrates and it has been my lived experience also is what I believe to be the inestimable healing capacity of the imaginary world. Um, another sort of starting point for the film um, again as a coming of age genre although the film is quite genre defying at the same time is my enduring love for the old nostalgic tune Puff the Magic Dragon and what I love about that tune is I, I think it speaks as a parable across generations you know I remember it as a child and and yeah I remember it too. and yeah. you know wanting to be little Jackie Paper that had a dragon that he could meet up with that gave you presents and you flew across the universe with mm. but then as equally this idea that as little Jackie Paper grows up, he stops going to visit Puff the Magic Dragon and poor Puff the Magic Dragon crawls into his cave and ceases his fearless roar. And even now, um, I feel emotional articulating those things. And for me, the messaging is that as we transition from childhood into adulthood, that we don't lose that capacity. We don't lose, that we don't become disconnected from the wild, playful, fearless, inquisitive, like senses wide open in level of engagement that little people have with the world. And I, I know that my art practice has kept me on the planet and being an artist is one of the hardest things <laughs> you will ever do. But having said that, it, it, you know, it is the the greatest blessing at the same time like every day you step into the studio you have to connect to those open vulnerable vital places within you and boom <laughs> yeah yeah 
Well, that well, the movie is, has been. Um... So sorry. What I want to say yeah. is that the film does end in a place. It is ultimately a very hopeful story, and I am a very hopeful person. Um, and I was going to ask you about that because I, I when you know, I was looking through your work and and sort of reading what you've been writing online, and I've just that is something that does shine through for me is that through your language, through your um, attitude and your showing up the way you do, I do get that sense of optimism. Mm. And through, your, uh, through these paintings that are surrounding us now, I think uh, you can't use these colours like this without being an optimistic <laughs> person. <laughs> well, I had a very clear mission statement, personal mission statement for this show. Um, the planet has been rocked in so many ways in recent years and for me what I wanted to do more than anything with this show at this moment in time for myself and for the planet was create something very generous and very beautiful still with layers of complexity and shade but I wanted to offer abundance and generosity and ideally joy Uh, for me life has this insane inestimable kind of instinct towards life Um, and just the gift of life is so humbling and the connection to other people the connection to the planet that is what we need to celebrate collectively and to hear the hurt, the human hurt and the environmental hurt and bring our best selves to it. I know that that sounds incredibly idealistic on one level, but simple truths are so palpable. Yeah. Well, actually, talking about the environment, one of the things that I love about your work is the inclusion of, you know, a lot of nature. So flowers uh, and foliage. And in particular, I'm thinking about a work that was just acquired by National Gallery of Australia. Congratulations. Thank you. It's an absolutely beautiful work. Huge. It's like 200 by 300 centimetres. It's the biggest single panel work I've made to date, actually. Oh, is it really? Yeah. It's absolutely stunning. It's um, called My Heart is Blazing 11 Hours. And you've said about it that it remains one of the most personal works you've made in recent years and that in it you bear your complexity, strength and mystery as a woman. Mm -hmm. I'll just quickly describe it. It's five female figures and as I said before, this strong presence of foliage, flowers forming the dress of, of the women, of the four women on either side of the central woman. Uh, and it has, for me, it has this really Australian feeling about it because I think it's, I think it's the Sturt Desert Peas, isn't yes. it? There's the flower yes. that it forms the headdress of two of the women. Um, and you, re- I think you refer to them on Instagram as Desert Pea She's. <laughs> <laughs> a nice hyphenated little <laughs> phrase there, who are ready for battle and lovemaking. There's so much mystery in this work. How do you feel about it? The work and the fact that it's, you know, ha- going to be hanging in the National Gallery of Australia. I mean, it's an incredible outcome for me for that work to be in that collection. Um, so I'm moved and thrilled by that. Um, 
I'm not going to reveal the mystery of the work. Um, I'd like to think that it's there innately. Um, but to paraphrase you paraphrasing me. <laughs> Again, I love, for me, what women do so well and as we are allowed more leadership positions, um, we are ready to go into battle with our hearts wide open. And history needs to be rewritten. Yeah, I think when you say that you're not going to reveal the mystery, I think asking an artist to explain a work is like killing the work. <laughs> it's like there is – that's why I, I often – I just try and avoid it, you know. You can't expect an artist to explain their work. And also you don't want to limit the work anyway. Yeah. I mean, an artist doesn't want to limit the work to their audience by saying this is what it is, mm. you know. And I think especially with your work, because it does have that mystical um, otherworldly equality it is just calling out to be interpreted in a personal way mm. um, yeah I will state for the record and this might sound a little bit brutal but I have no interest in interpreting my works for audiences yeah yeah <laughs> which is a good thing I've got to say um, now forget about having a work in the National Gallery of Australia you know you've really made it when one of your works gets made into a postage stamp <laughs> So, so they say. <laughs> Australia Post re released um, a stamp issue last year to mark the art. She's turning 100 and the Art Gallery of New South Wales turning 150. And they made your portrait of Hugo weaving into a stamp. It's a fabulous painting. I love that one. And the two others were William Dargie with his portrait of Albert Namajira and also William Joe Bell's portrait of Margaret Ollie. So... That is great company to be... Absurd. Like, absurd company. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it must feel really great to be cel celebrated in that way, you know? What was sweet for me is that I actually collected stamps as a child um, and I love letters. So for me, there was also that other kind of nostalgic layer as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah, on our letter writing, it's such a thing, you know. If you get a handwritten letter in the mail, it's like gold. Dude. <laughs> now, also, I wanted to touch on your Instagram page. I mentioned it earlier. Um, and, you know, apart from sharing your art on there, you also post videos. As I mentioned, you read a, one of your poems a while ago, which I loved. You talk about the music you love. That's another great thing, you know. I think Instagram's great because you can have little snippets on there and you get it. The, the artists can also share what inspires them as well. Mm. And I noticed that you started it after COVID hit. Do you think if that hadn't happened, you might never have gone on Instagram? What, what caused you to go on to it? I was um, on Instagram for many years as an observer only. <laughs> <laughs> and I was never really sure if I'd have the courage to go public with it. And I definitely started in a gentle way. Um, you know, I definitely find the toxicity at times of social media something hard to, to navigate. But um, at the same time, it is a very generous platform and a very ge generous medium. And no, I've really enjoyed it and just 
getting a little bit braver with what I share over the years. Yeah. Oh, look, I'm t- I think a lot of artists are really enjoying it as well. A lot of other <laughs> artists looking on. It's fantastic. And in fact, this is, you know, your first post was what made me think about your optimistic nature because the first one you posted was your fantastic work, uh, The Highway is a Disco. And you sort of put COVID in perspective because you said, with so much human suffering and uncertainty at the moment, I offer you an image of joy and longing. Let's ride our bunny beloveds to <laughs> deserted highways and get our disco on. <laughs> I tell you, that was. It, it, I think people needed to see that sort of thing and hear that sort of thing um, at that time. And I think, you know, I, I find that your work, it is, it, it, it's a mixture of joy and optimism, but also has as a quality of the unknown, which is slightly confronting, you know. Mm. And I think also um, the female form is unapologetically presented in a very uh, upfront way. I might speak directly to the title of the show, um, which is The Women Who Fell to Earth, which is a reinterpretation of one of my favourite films, The Man Who Fell to Earth, with, you know, the extraordinary unicorn David Bowie Um, it was a film I watched quite young and it was quite impactful um, a bit of a game changer for me in in lots of different ways for me um, apart from being a cinematic master work um, you know the core of the narrative is a particularly poignant love story about an alien husband and father who has come to earth in an attempt to save his planet and in particular his wife and his two children um, from extinction. So for me, there were these, again, just sort of complex, evocative layers and definitely swapping out the male protagonist for the female protagonist, which is something I'm very passionate about. (laughs) (laughs) And in answer to your question now, again, I because these are very complex narratives for me and so connected to my complex experience of inhabiting a female form. Um, What I try to offer or at least understand for myself and then the offering comes more autonomously from the work itself is that the naked female form is so many things And there has, again, the word reductive keeps coming up in this conversation, but there has just been so many reductive lenses throughout history and reductive canons of the the female nude. And I'm just... I I love weighing into that and um, celebrating female form in all of its multiplicity... Certainly for me, its innate life-giving nature is incredibly important. The very visceral nature of that, uh, as I'm talking, I'm looking at an enormous bubblegum nipple (laughs) flooding with milk. (laughs) Yes, it's a green breast too, I should point out. And actually these bare-breasted maidens, um, I was very passionate about ancient history as a teenager and it was the Cretan goddesses. Um, or the Cretan um, priestesses that um, from the Palace of Knossos that wandered around bare-breasted. Let's bring yeah. that back. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? 
And can I can we jump now to 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 your recent sculptural work? Yes, um, I loved seeing your bronze work in the Win Prize and in the Know My Name exhibition recently at the National Gallery of Australia. Now we've got these absolutely stunning um, shells that are actually made of of timber. Yes, can you tell me a bit about those? Um, the first shell I made was for my um, survey show at the National Gallery of Victoria. And that work um, had a lot of layered meaning. It was a work that was a homage um, to my mother who actually didn't live to experience the work, which is still sort of hard to think about and talk about. Um, But this idea of, well, there were many, many layers, but as one aspect, there was this large um, handkerchief slash sail that came out of the shell And my idea in making that work, um, my mother was diagnosed with um, stage five pancreatic cancer. So from, you know, the moment she was diagnosed, she was basically living in a dying process. Um, And I had this, yeah, very sentimental idea to make the world's biggest handkerchief to soak up all the tears from departed mothers. And then this idea of the shell um, being washed up from sort of the Jungian ocean of the unconscious and you know a shell in that form is an abandoned home so it was this idea of again the departed mother never returning to the home Um, and then I cast my hands in bronze and they were open um, at the entrance of the shell which is you know a very female form um, and then the title of the work was At the Foot of Your Love. So just acknowledging, you know, the depth of that connection and that relationship and and then the absence of that. Um, but I collaborated <clears throat> with one of my best friends, the great Boris Tosik, who is a master um, craftsman, a master wood maker <laughs> um, on that shell and the other layer of mean, meaning actually within the making process and the materiality was that we made um, that particular shell with Huon pine and Huon pine is one of the oldest um, trees on the planet like they're dinosaur trees and you can't use them until they have fallen into the, the river in, in Tasmania um, and only then Uh, I mean, they're literally thousands of years old. Um, So an incredibly sacred material. And if you're not familiar with Huon Pine, what it also brings with it is this insane aroma, which I like to think of as almost like a dinosaur perfume. And it permeated the whole gallery. And it is an extraordinary smell. It, It takes you to a very deep place inside your body. So for me, it was also this idea of that the kind of, natural cycles of nature that we're working with a a tree that has died naturally and then yeah offering it a different kind of agency you know making it into an artwork Mm. um so these three shells which are still of a large scale but a scale that speaks more naturally to the physiology of a human body uh, yeah, sort of three more iterations of that initial collaboration. Um, I've also inlaid eyes on them 
as a sort of another narrative layer and used mother of pearl and again natural materials the color is you just almost can't believe how the the richness of the pigment which is just so beautiful in and of itself yes yeah. exactly no it looks like paint but it's not it's inlaid and that nat- and natural yeah. pigment too. wow yeah it's it's incredible yeah I'm sure Boris won't mind me sharing but um he is at the moment living with motor neuron disease and so again this sort of incredibly poignant juxtaposition of life and death and creative energy um and love, you know, is is very real in these works. Mm. Yeah. So um, you've got coming up the um, the Tribeca Film Festival. Are you going to be going to that in New York? I am, and I'm incredibly excited about that. Um, it's been selected to be in competition in the international narrative um, feature film section. One of only. Um, 10 films. Wow, that's fantastic. Yeah, it, it is. Um, we're all still pinching ourselves a little <laughs> bit. And <laughs> How amazing. So yeah. you're all going to – actually, I don't think I mentioned earlier that it's a pretty star-studded cast. You've got, you know, Simon Baker and Gail Stone are both in it as well. So are they going as well? Are the actor's going to be there? Definitely um, the young actor, Julia um, Savage, her name is, and she's extraordinary – will be there. She's in 93 scenes. <laughs> oh, wow. And we right. shot that when she was 12 years old and she's extraordinary. Um, I think Simon's coming, but we're still working all that out at the moment. Yeah, fabulous. Yeah. And is mm. this going to be the first time you left Australia since COVID started? Yes. How exciting. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, well, all the best with that, Dell. I hope Thank you win. You. And I can't wait to see it. Um, and congratulations on this absolutely magnificent show at Rosanoxley 9. Thank you so much. It was lovely to speak with you. What a great artist. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Del Catherine Barton. If you're in Sydney, make sure you see the show. It will stay with you long after you've left the gallery, I promise. And Rosalind Oxley 9 Gallery is in a great enclave of galleries in Paddington, so it is a perfect place for gallery hopping. And in fact, only about 100 metres down the road uh, is the exhibition of another podcast guest, Tim Maguire. His show is absolutely brilliant and it is on at Martin Brown Contemporary. So pop in there if you are in the neighbourhood. And if you haven't heard it already, go to episode 67 to hear Del talk about her fascinating life. I really enjoyed that conversation in her Sydney studio back in 2019. Also, congratulations to all the artists who've been shortlisted in the Archie Wynn and Sulman Prizes at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. I'm going to be at the announcement at the Art Gallery of New South Wales on Friday and you can watch a live stream of that announcement through the Art Gallery of New South Wales. I think a couple of their social media platforms are going to be live streaming it. But make sure you come back to my Instagram page uh, where I'll be updating you all day on all the excitement that is going going on, including, uh, I hope, some interviews. Uh, Talking about social media, I'm constantly posting on social media, so that is where you can stay connected with me between podcast episodes. Uh, There is a lot going on over on Instagram in particular, where I uh, sometimes do live Instagram uh, shows where people can join me on screen. It's a lot of fun. But if you're not on Instagram, I'm also on Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok as well. 
Thanks again to those of you who have rated and reviewed on Apple Podcasts. It is so helpful getting the show out to more people. Uh, So I really appreciate it. Thank you. Um, And thanks for listening today. And I hope you can join me for the next episode of Talking with Painters. Mm -hmm.